welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to award-winning author and journalist, Henry Porter. Henry was a regular columnist for the Observer newspaper until 2014 and was the editor of Vanity Fair until 2018, a position he held for over 25 years. A dedicated champion of civil liberties, he's an activist and has organised numerous events and fundraisers to raise awareness of issues that he is passionate about. Henry has written nine novels, including a children's book. His latest book, The Old Enemy, is the third part of a quartet of thrillers and was published in April this year. Henry, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely delight to have you on here. I mean, it was lovely meeting you the other day when you yeah. popped into the sister bookshop of Mostly Books, the Borzoi Bookshop. Congratulations on the purchase. <laughs> Thank you. It's so exciting. And it was just, it was lovely that when you were in, you were expecting the birth of your first grandchild. Yeah. Who then safely arrived. So I was pleased to hear that. The day after, yeah. So I'd like to start off today by going back to your childhood. You were part of a family of four, and I understand you grew up as part of the army community on army camps in Germany and in Worcestershire. Is that correct? Yeah, my family is very military. They go back to the 1840s as serving officers. Never very senior ranked, but brave people all. I'm sure I would never have been a brave. So I was the sixth Henry Porter, but the one that didn't go into the army. But I spent my early years in Germany at a place called Sanalaga. And then we went from military base to military base in Britain until my father left the army in the 60s. What was that like as a child moving around so much? Did you enjoy it? I suppose you probably didn't know anything different. I didn't mind it, actually. What, what it meant was that I went from school to school. So they didn't, they didn't have time enough to work me out. <laughs> so I was there for sort of two or three terms and then I was off. And I don't think it did my education much good, but it certainly meant that I got away with stuff. Perfect. And as a child, that's exactly what you want. Yeah. <laughs> How did you spend your time as a child? I was a very outdoors kid. I had a mother who was almost transcendentally relaxed about what I did. We lived on the bluff above a river, the Avon. And to be honest, we used guns, fishing rods, boats, <laughs> without any supervision at all. That's my brother and I. My brother's just a year younger. Without any supervision, quite extraordinary. It seems to me now extraordinary that we managed to survive our childhood <laughs> because we did some dangerous stuff, but also because it was very good for sort of character building. I learned never ever to be bored. You know, I'm very keen on the natural world. I knew a lot from an early age about what tree is what, what bird does what. And I also remember I was never very good at school, certainly early on. And we went round with a teacher identifying trees and it's literally the only thing I ever got 10 out of 10 for uh, when I was sort of eight because I just knew what I was looking at and the same with birds and insects so I was very natural kid didn't do much reading and did actually everything I could to avoid reading until I was about 11 
Because I understand you're dyslexic. Yeah, very. Was that diagnosed early on or was that something you found out later in life? It wasn't really diagnosed, actually, because, of course, dyslexia didn't really exist in the 60s. <laughs> but, I mean, it was interesting that, that I, there was stuff that really took me a long time, reading took me a long time. And now I think I'd sort of train my brain to get over almost everything, that occasionally I misspell stuff. But I'm an intense reader now, and if I say it myself, got a good level of concentration. So, you know, I can write an article for The Observer and get it in on time and spell right and so forth. So I think it's when I was 20, somebody said, you are a classic dyslexic. And it suddenly all made sense to me, you know, because I'd had great difficulty at school. And it was sheer force of will. And I see it in my children as well, both of whom are very dyslexic. And now in their 30s, both girls, I see the, the way they got round it, the way they power through it. And in a way, I think it builds another muscle. So I'm not sad. I've got a good imagination as a result, I think. I think my imagination and dyslexia are very linked. But that's just, you know, there's no scientific reasoning for that. But I just think that that is the case. Because my older daughter has an extremely good imagination. And I noticed she had great trouble when she was in her teens. And now is, you know, a director of a company and, and doing very well. Yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that it's finding your way around it, finding your way through it. And you obviously talked about the fact that you didn't start reading until you were about 11. Once you started reading, once you discovered reading, was that something that became important to you quite quickly or was it a slow burn? Because obviously you're a big fan of books and writing these days, but did it appear in your childhood or was it more when you were an adult? I read books when I was 10 or 11. I, I remember reading The Hobbit when, so I can date it because I was reading it when President Kennedy was assassinated. Goodness. So that I was 10 then because we all heard at school and I was reading The Hobbit at the time. So I know when I was reading that book. And then I read John Buck and, and I am a big fan and I think he's a wonderful, wonderful writer of, oh God, you see now here's either senility or dyslexia, but Robert Louis Stevenson. And I read Treasure Island uh, and just thought it was wonderful. And I still think it's a wonderful book, actually, Kidnapped also. I mean, I think they're really brilliant. He's a brilliant storyteller. So I got into that and then John Buchan and Eric Ambler I read at school and John Le Carre very early. In fact, I met John Le Carre. Oh, really? Yeah, I met John Le Carre for lunch. We share exactly the same politics, which I won't bore you with. I mean, just you could overlay my politics and they would match his. And he and I had a very long and lovely lunch about seven, eight years ago, something like that. And I took my battered copy that I'd had when I was 16, when the book had just been published. Oh, wow. And I took it to the lunch. And he was incredibly moved. And I, and I asked him to sign it. And he was incredibly moved that I'd kept it all that time because he was jolly nearly 50 years, you know. My goodness. I mean, I really, really liked him and thought he was a great, great, great writer. And I liked him personally, you know, because he was very slippery and deft and subtle and nuanced person. You never know quite what you were dealing with. You know, we bonded on politics and he supported some of the things I was doing and wrote nice letters and gave me money and stuff. So I adored him. And, and it was a kind of moving moment to show him the book. My goodness. Yes. Which book was it? Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Fabulous. In fact, I think that was his second book. I think it was a, a first book, but I can't remember it, which is basically a murder mystery with George Smiley in it. The Spy Who Came Into the Cold yeah. was, I think, mid-60s. I've been very hazy about the dates. But it's an utterly brilliant book because it's so short and it is so intensely and brilliantly plotted. It's a really, really clever book. 
Well, I mean, they've obviously, they've continued to sell. And obviously, with the sad news of John's death, there was another resurgence of people kind of discovering his books again, like the next generation. We always have them in the shop. They're always what we call a core stock item. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. So you read certain books as a child. You then, uh, during your teenage years, you obviously discovered new titles. How did you then end up going from somebody who was probably, I'd say it sounds like a slightly reluctant reader initially, to working in print media? How did that transition happen? Well, the real thing was I went to university in Italy for two years and I really did some reading there because there was no TV, radio, anything, no distractions, obviously, no internet, no mobile phones, no Mm -hmm. nothing. And I really, really read that. I read enormous amounts of books because that was all there was to do in the evening. Mm And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that period. And that put me onto the business. I didn't really think I'd ever be a writer. I've always been more keen on art and I still paint and draw. Uh, I was sort of painting all yesterday. Lovely. But I, so I never thought I'd be a writer. But it sort of, my dad asked me one day, I remember because I was just about to leave my art course in Manchester. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And I looked down the footwell of his Rover 2000, which he's very proud of. Most people won't remember that car, but he was incredibly proud of it. And the the Times was there, and I said to him, simply for something to say, I said, well, I think I'll be a journalist. This was entirely because the Times was in there. (laughs) I was basically just playing for time. And he said, well, better go on and start applying. And I eventually got a job. And it was difficult to begin with. Because of my dyslexia, I was incredibly slow to type stuff. And then I just decided to be quick, you know? I just decided, stuff this. I'm going to be quick. I'm going to be like everyone else. And I did sort of get over it. And then I moved to London and went to the Sunday Times, where I was a columnist, quite young. And and then I did a series of editing jobs. I edited magazines and stuff. And then... I eventually became the European editor for Vanity Fair, which was sometime early in the 90s. And that was really an amazing job to have because I could literally do what I wanted. When you're the editor of something, you can go and cover what you want. So I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1990 for the correspondent newspaper. I Then during the 90s, I went to Bosnia and in the noughties did the Arab Spring did quite recently the migrant crisis for the magazine and the terrorist attacks in Paris in 2015. So I did the stories I wanted. So that was an amazing privilege. And a magazine then, magazines aren't as powerful as they were, but in my time, they had good budgets and they could send a reporter and that reporter could disappear for a month and bring back a story. And that's, and that's sort of unheard of now. It really is unheard of unless you work for the BBC. Even then, I think it's probably unheard of so you know the the resources for reporting and journalism have gone down incredibly in the last 10 years and that really matters but I was lucky and I benefited from them when they were not quite in surplus but they certainly were much better than they are now Mm, amazing Fast forward to today, you now live in Gloucestershire, you still spend time in London, which in your own words is good for stimulating the imagination. Um, What's life like for you? I think it's pretty good. You know, if I'm writing a book, all I will do is think and write. So The Old Enemy was written in a large part during the first lockdown. 
I mean, I really powered it out and made myself produce a sort of some 50 to 1,000 words a day. Now, if you, you know, you don't have wow. to do much addition or multiplication to realise that you can produce a book quite quickly. As long as you do that 1,000 words a day, you can potentially produce, mm-hmm. you know, 100 to 150 days, which is, you know, six months. So that's what I did. And it was good. It, was, it turned out that I was really ill at the time, though I didn't know it. And I, oh. I finished the editing of the book in September, went for a routine test, found I had cancer. Oh, goodness. And, well, it was kind of interesting. I won't go into a rather spooky way that I felt that I needed to go. But anyway, because it just sounds silly. But I did go. And they caught the cancer really early without any spread. And I had two really unpleasant operations. And then by Christmas, they both doctors who had been involved said, right, you're cancer-free, off you go. That's amazing. It was a pretty amazing, <laughs> a pretty amazing year <laughs> last year. I mean, you know, it was a roller coaster last year. And, oh, I've You know, write a book, get cancer, get cured, and then you move into the next year thinking, wow, I hope I don't have another year like that. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, most people are saying 2020 is a year they're not going to forget, but you certainly won't. No, I won't. I'm very won't. glad you're well now. So I guess... The year was probably less about COVID for you and more about the book and, and dealing with your illness. Yeah, well, it was. I was actually, I was really early on to the COVID thing. I happened to read something after the Christmas of 2019 about this mysterious bug. So I was very alert to it very early. Mm-hmm. And I really thought it was a big danger. I'd always been frightened of bird flu in the past. I always thought bird flu was a real danger to humanity. But this was the thing that has proved to be. And so we moved from London very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I stopped up with various things in the garage. Not, you know, new paper and stuff, but spaghetti and rice so that we didn't have to go out. Because my wife's a bit older than me. And I did not want her to catch it. So we moved into lockdown ahead of most people. And that's why I started my book way before the actual lockdown started. And I thought it was eerie and spooky. That first lockdown was the weirdest thing. I mean, I used to go out for walks and you saw nobody. No jet Mm -hmm. trails in the sky, no signs of agricultural machinery. It was weird. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about that quite a lot because my shop, Mostly Books, is on as much of a main road as you've got in Abingdon. It's on a little ring road and there's always traffic going past. But during lockdown, we were all in the shop every day, obviously dealing with orders and trying to get them out to, to be delivered to people. And there was just no cars going down that road. It was so strange. And obviously, even this subsequent, the two subsequent lockdowns, there's been traffic, although not as much as normal. But we talk about that quite a lot, about that being an experience that none of us will probably ever go through again. It was odd. And it occurred to me that we were hearing and seeing the world, well, more hearing it, as Wordsworth had, you know? Mm. I mean, you could really hear the bird song. You were really aware of the weather. I find it very moving in a way, because there was some return to nature's preeminence in a way and I found that very moving and of course we're back to normal now polluting and doing everything but it was a lovely six seven weeks when you didn't see anybody I liked it a lot Mm. yeah and I think it really made everyone appreciate some of the basic things I think the fact that for the social interaction that any of us everyone was craving the only way we could really do that at certain points was to go for a walk with people I think that's really made people appreciate the small things like just getting out in the fresh air and and, and and doing things that are good for health. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I know a place near where I live, which has got one of the best views in England, but you never know it's there. 
You just don't know it. So I discovered it walking around here. It's about seven miles from where I am now. I discovered it quite by chance walking up. And it's not the hill that you expect a view from, but there is this astounding view. And it's just fascinating. I, I was always the only person there. And now the footpaths are well-trodden and people see it. And so it's been discovered. And I think that's true for a lot of Britain. People have discovered what an amazing, amazing place they live in. Mm. And I also think the fact that foreign travel has been reduced significantly. I know I was chatting about this with, with Anthea, who I just bought the Borzoi bookshop from. Yeah. And the fact that Stowe last summer was so busy with tourists. I mean, obviously, the Cotswolds is a popular tourist destination anyway, but she said it was significantly more last year than she'd ever seen in the 30 odd years she's worked at the shop. And so I really hope, even though I'm a big fan of foreign travel myself, I've really enjoyed kind of staying more local and exploring the country we live in. I think it's a beautiful place. Yeah. So during lockdown, you were obviously busy dealing with your health and, and writing the book. Did you get much chance to read? Yeah, I'm always reading something like that. Yeah, I don't like not having a book to read. And during my time in hospital, of course, I couldn't see anyone. Mm. I was in and out of hospital for about five to six weeks, having two operations and one procedure. But I read a lot during that. But although I was absolutely, you know, whacked and very, very tired. But I read this Nabokov, you should say Vladimir Nabokov, memoir. I read some memoirs of a rather different nature. So I read David Niven's memoir and The Moon's a Balloon. Mm -hmm. And I read, and I'd last read Nabokov when I was a student in Italy. And I just think it is so brilliant, crystal clear, sharp, intelligent writing. I, do, I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. There's something about him which is a bit cold and distant, but I think he is the memory of his father's assassination, the Russian Revolution, his fascination for a young girl, his chasing of butterflies in the scrub of Western Russia. It is like watching a film. He's such a good writer. And that moved me incredibly. And it was nice to read a book 40 years after I first read it and thought how good it was. Yeah, it's nice when you haven't built it up in your mind to be better than it actually is. Yeah. The fact that you read it again and still enjoyed it as much is fantastic. I so know that feeling. That's <laughs> why so I often won't read a book again. It's the same as going to visit somewhere. I think it was somewhere you really loved and had an amazing experience. I think sometimes it's better to keep the memories yeah, and not be disappointed. Yeah, it, it's so true that. So what was the last book you read? The last book was, I think, a thing on screenwriting, very clever, called Save the Cat. And Save the Cat is a brilliant book by, gosh, no, I can't remember what his name is now. He's a screenwriter from Hollywood, and he published a book on his own, so he didn't go to a publisher. And it is the most amazingly clever advice on how to write a screenplay. But I'm attempting a TV series at the moment. Oh, fantastic. And I just found it immensely useful. And he, he's just so clever. He's so sharp. And when he tells you something, you think, oh, is that true? And then you realise, of course it's true. He's worked out the sort of hidden pattern of screenwriting to a really extraordinary degree. It's a really, really clever book. And now I'm in the middle of the Robert A. Caro three-part, will be four-part if he lives, biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is the greatest biography I've ever read. I think it's utterly, utterly brilliant. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. What makes it so interesting? Well, first of all, he's a very good, fresh writer. Secondly, he drops into journalism here and there. So he'll bring 
his impressions of interviewing Lyndon Johnson's friends from his university and school days. And when he talks about these people, meets, he'll bring their circumstances into the book and show how Lyndon Johnson's absolutely demonically powerful personality destroyed people. And, you know, I'm very interested. Lyndon Johnson is a really peculiar character. And the other great part of the book is that he is really about mid-century America from, you know, 1930 to 1970. It's really about that history. So it's his time as well as his personality. And if you're interested in politics, which I am, you kind of realise, I, I had a sort of revelation last night, I was thinking really that you've got to be a complete freak almost to get <laughs> to the top of the pile. Now, I won't mention any names, but I think we've got quite a few examples of those now, of people who are freakish in their lack of self-awareness and their lack of care for people, their lack of empathy. And, then, you know, those things really do get you to the top. It's not sympathy, understanding the other side of the argument or anything like that. It's actually much darker sides of a personality will push you to the top. And I find that kind of important understanding which I only really had last night it's a very very good book yeah it's interesting that you're absolutely right and they say the same don't they about um, a lot of CEOs of companies got a similar sort of mindset where they kind of have very distinct characteristics to enable them to get to that position yeah I, I think rather them than me and <laughs> any in terms of politicians and, and those kind of positions just touching you, you mentioned the fact that you're writing a screenplay I'm quite fascinated by that what's that all about and uh, what made you decide to go down that route? I'm always slightly superstitious about telling people what I'm up to but it's set in England I understand. and it's the intersection of journalism and espionage and I spent a lot of time or did traveling and setting my books in Estonia as this one the current one is Estonia and Washington I used to live in America so I kind of know it well but I thought I'd actually write something which was absolutely English and treated England as a foreign country. So I would go to a part of England where I've set it and treat it as I would a foreign country. I just start picking up as much detail as I can mm-hmm. about the life there. And I've been really interested in how little I know about this country and the little I know about how it's developed socially in the last 20 years. It's really changed. And and it's kind of getting that local detail. But it's also a thriller. So the complicated part of the thriller is always plotting it. So I'm spending a lot of time on that. But, I, you know, I've written screenplays before. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I think this story is quite good. So I have hopes. Oh, I'll look forward to seeing the output, hopefully. Let's talk about your latest book. You mentioned it there, um, The Old Enemy. Yeah. It came out on the 15th of April. And it's doing incredibly well for us in both of the shops. It's oh, flying out of the out. Right, right. Yeah. So this is the third book in the series featuring the character Paul Samson. Yes. Tell us about the book. Well, the book, as you say, it's got all the characters from the two previous books, Firefly, which is the first book, uh, White Hot Silence, and then this one. And it's got all the characters. I spent nearly what, 350,000, 370,000 words talking about these characters, these four characters. And Samson's in the middle of it. And I really like Samson because he was born outside this country. And so he's actually of Lebanese heritage. Mm -hmm. I have a great affection for Lebanon. I think it's a wonderful place. 
and he lives in Mayfair, has a restaurant, his parents had died. He is actually quite good at his restaurant, but he was also in MI6. People forget that spies have outside lives, mm-hmm. and his outside life is running a restaurant which is in the middle of Mayfair, is very successful. And I find that very entertaining about him is that he has this dual life. And I also happen to love Lebanese food. So it's, it's, for me, it's just a pleasure that he's running this restaurant and has people visit. And after writing three books, you live, I mean, I only have to kind of start talking about him as I am now. And I'm beginning to see the restaurant in my head, what he's doing upstairs in the office and so forth. And I see him now in his late 30s or early 40s. Elegant man, shrewd, formerly a gambler, totally in love with one woman, but it's an unsuitable affair. Well, unsuitable in the sense that they love each other, but they uh, can't get on. And I find that interesting and true about life. You know, some people, your greatest love is often the person you're not going to get on with. And so I kind of live his life when I'm writing these books. And partly why I'm not writing a Samson book at the moment is that I just wanted to take a rest from him, you know, because it's been four years of writing about him. And he's not a sort of James Bond figure. He has his flaws and he takes his time making up his mind about something. And he's incredibly judicious about the risk he's taking. And I just kind of love him because he's not the sort of all-round muscular, violent hero at all. Yeah, absolutely. He's a really great character. Um, I, I like to see how he's developed over the three books. When you first started writing out Firefly, the first book in the series was published in 2018. When that was written, did you always know it was going to be a series of books? Was that always the plan? No, I had no idea. And what's so fascinating is that, well, fascinating for me, I'm not sure about anyone else, but I mean, the idea of Firefly came to me very, very quickly in about five minutes at a refugee camp in Lesbos. And I'd been interviewing this incredibly sweet and nice and heroic psychologist who worked in the camps and her life was just unbelievable and I thought she's one of the bravest people I've ever met morally and mentally incredibly brave incredibly Mm -hmm. resilient and she was looking after some of the kids who were on the migrant trail there on their own one forgets that period in 2015 where a million people were on the route Mm -hmm. from the Middle East to Europe and probably more yeah one forgets what that was like it was a biblical migration one of the great migrations of history. And you forget just the sheer mass of people on that route, which I followed up through the Balkans, through Greece, and then um, through Macedonia and, uh, and Serbia and Slovenia. You forget what that was like. There were quite a few kids on the route themselves, by themselves, 10, 11-year-old, 13-year-old kids. And she was trying to get hold of them and look after them. I saw this kid in a, a compound kicking his heels. I was struck by how good-looking he was and how clever he looked. And in that moment, my little hero, Naji Tuma, was born. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the book came to me in five, ten minutes, and I went home and started writing an outline. And then the characters who were born after Naji became really interested in them. And I thought, well, why not continue writing about them? And that's how the the Mm. series was born. Fantastic. So were you over in the refugee camp because of your work in the magazine? Is that why you were there? I was writing a very big piece about Europe. In 2015, we were running into the British referendum. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, we knew it was going to happen sometime in 2016. 
we had the migrant crisis, which of course was very influential in the British referendum. And we had the very frightening attacks across Paris and Brussels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I covered the battle and you probably don't remember the name of the restaurant, but the restaurant rock venue where they attacked. Mm -hmm. I covered all that in Paris and then went to Brussels, then went to Greece, because it all was of a piece. There was a sense of crisis about Europe. People really understood Mm -hmm. that the migrant crisis was part of a bigger existential crisis about Europe, which obviously figured the Brexit campaign and the attacks from Islamist terrorists. So I was writing this enormous piece for Vanity Fair. That's when I was in the refugee camp. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Brexit there as part of what you just talked about, which kind of brings me back in my mind to some of the work you've done in terms of your activism, you know, being very vocal about these causes that you believe in. Yeah. How did you get involved in all of that? I mean, is that something that you just kind of fell into? Is that as a result of your work in the media? How did that come about? Well, I think I am really interested in politics. And the reason I'm really interested in politics is because I want society to improve. It's as simple as that. And there also perhaps a slight delusion that you can do something about it. So from 2006 to 2010, I campaigned on and against the attack or what I regarded as ordinary British rights and civil liberties by the Labour government, particularly Tony Blair, who I debated in public in The Observer. I can't remember which year it was, but he really was furious, and I was accusing him of attacking liberty and offered this email debate, which we had. And then I staged a big event called the Convention on Liberty, mm-hmm. and subsequently I staged three other big events, debates, which are, I have to say, are they left of centre? But they're certainly concerned and show my liberal convictions. Mm-hmm. Some are on Brexit, some are on liberty, some are on justice. And when we have an end to lockdown, I think I might go back into it. Depends how well I am, you know. But I don't know. I think, I mean, most of my friends couldn't be more bored than when you start talking about politics. So <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've only got one friend who's as deeply interested in politics as I am. And I think, well, you know, one's life is short. You've got to know how much you can do and not deceive yourself about what you can do. But I do think raising issues on big platforms in big halls is a way of helping the debate and making sure that one side of an argument is ventilated. And and, yeah, quite fascinating. So you've got lots of strings to your bow, and obviously we've already talked about the fact that the moment you work on the screenplay, I'm sure you're enjoying the fact that the old enemy is now out there and people are finally able to get their hands on it. But I presume that's keeping you busy enough at the moment. Is there anything else you're working on? No, I'm, I'm working on my garden. I'm wondering when that is. <laughs> I have a shed in the garden, so nobody can see me, and six or seven big vegetable boxes. So I'm waiting for the soil to heat up. And it's a kind of good distraction from writing. You can go and prop up a runner bean or whatever it might be or check on your sweet peas. And it's kind of a nice way of just taking five minutes away from a book. So I build that distraction into my life. And I'm not really doing much. No, I'm just, I'm really, I guess I'm like everyone else, really fascinated as well as frightened by this pandemic. But I'm fascinated to see what comes out of it, you know, when we eventually get control. And I think that's some way off what comes out of it, how societies change, and whether all the changes that we've experienced in the last 15 months will remain, you know? Whether we continue to be nice to each other or and value the NHS, such things like that. 
or whether we'll go back to our old selves. It'll be interesting. I'm fascinated by what happens now. Yeah, I'm with you on that, actually. I think, like I say, there are certain things that a lot of us have kind of rediscovered or discovered for the first time. And I hope, for the benefit of society, we remember that. I do think that there will be a certain amount of people reverting back to type. But I'm hopeful that some positives will come out of it. It's very strange because obviously we all know at any time we're living history, aren't we? We're living the things that people will look back on, but no more so than this last year. Um, like you say, 15 months. And it's just fascinating to think I've got a couple of young nephews, one of whom's old enough to know what's going on, the other one isn't old enough. But it's just so interesting to think that, you know, in 20, 30 years time, they'll be looking back on this and asking people about what it was like. The whole thing's just a very, very interesting, albeit very traumatic and strange time to be living through. It is. I mean, when I was in hospital last year, I taught, I mean, obviously, I wasn't in a pandemic ward, I was in a very sealed off cancer ward. And because I was up most nights and had to be checked most nights, I had long conversations with nurses who had been in the first wave front line, as it were, in ICUs during the first wave. And I was fascinated by their experience and their resilience and their all-round decency and kindness. And, you know, it was a real lesson to me how fantastic people are. And really, really brave and resilient. I suppose I should have known this before, but a penny really dropped with me talking to these nurses, both male and female, as I was recovering about what their experience had been. And it was really interesting. No higher service to humanity than what these people have done, I don't think. No, I totally agree. Well, on that note, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful note to finish on. Um, Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to me and best of luck with your new book. And I hope you enjoy your garden. It's my pleasure, actually. I've really enjoyed it. And all the best with your podcast and your book job. It's really all the best for, for both. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.